Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer at Schaefer Vineyards, and today we're talking with a guy I've known for a long time. Even if you're not all that tied into Napa Valley, the people, wineries, and history, you've probably heard the name Tom Rinaldi. He's been making wine for more than 40 years at Duckhorn, Providence, Round Hill, and Fremark Abbey. He's been in the trenches here going all the way back to the 1970s. Tom and his dogs recorded this sitting on the front porch of his house, so you'll hear a car drive by once in a while, but that's just life in the country. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Hey everybody, Doug Schaefer back with another episode of The Taste. It's uh, early August 2020. Uh, We're still doing these via the phone lines, um, which is frustrating, but at least we've got something to hang on to. Um, have a great guy on today, longtime friend, longtime winemaker, Tom Rinaldi. Tom's been founding winemaker at least three wineries that I know about, Round Hill, Duckhorn, Providence. And Tom, good to, good to have you on. I can't remember when we first met. Do you? Where did we first meet? Any idea? Oh boy, I bet that was around the t- about 1978 is my bet. I was getting grapes in the neighborhood and uh, uh, your dad was a buddy. I, I, maybe the Vintners Association, maybe uh, at Calistoga Tastings, yeah, the things old, like that. the old wine tech thing up at the Calistoga, the hanging beef dinners, remember those? Exactly, oh boy. <laughs> And, and it might have Yeah, been, that goes back to the 70s. It does. And I think we have something in common because I wasn't around full-time till early 80s, but Dad's first cab was a 78, and Duckhorn's first Merlot was a 78. So I remember meeting Dan through Dan Duckhorn through my dad. And that's probably where I met up with you at some point back in there in those days anyway. But uh, Sure. A lot, long yeah, time ago. I spent the first 22 vintages there. Oh, uh, I know you did. I know you did. But before good, you... Good be, memories. Before you went to Duckhorn, let's go all the way back. Before Napa, before winemaking, you know, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Talk to me. I was born in San Francisco, and my dad and his mom were born in San Francisco. Uh, my mother was conceived in Sicily and born in Brooklyn. But uh, she managed to meet up with my dad and had three, uh, three sons. Uh, I was the middle. In fact, uh, my birthday's next Saturday, uh, 71. Wow. No way. Mm, yep. Yeah, way. <laughs> but um, hey, I went to St. Ignatius High School. Very proud of that. Played football. We won the city championship uh, that year. Nice. And then uh, at 17, I signed up for the military and went in the Navy. And... Uh, that was that. <laughs> so we got a good idea. Like, <laughs> but growing up in San Francisco, that must have been that was God. Was that with Haight Ashbury and all that, and the hippies and the Flower Children and all that jazz? Was that going on? Exactly. <laughs> I got caught right in the middle of it. I got to meet Janis Joplin. I, I I had a long conversation with Jerry Garcia. I was there, man. I mean, I I was there for their first concert, both Big Door and a Holding Company with Janis Joplin. And uh, the Vandals becoming uh, the Grateful Dead. And they were right down the street, you know, and it was pretty cool to be uh, part of that. You were like, what, high school? Yes, yes. God, I can't even believe what that was like. So you were, that, you were in the middle of that whole scene, the Summer of Love and all that. And then, but meanwhile, you got the Giants and the Niners. Were you, were you tracking all that? Because I know you're a big oh, sure. Giants fan. Yeah. Yeah. 
And my mom, since she was born in Brooklyn, was a Dodgers fan. And I mean, we were watching Sandy Koufax throwing a no-hitter against the Giants. We're on our hands and knees begging, please, somebody get a hit. And she is just, yahoo, Dodger blue for Dodger. the last breath. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Um, well, what a scene. So growing up, wine in the house? Yes, I wasn't much of a wine guy, I tell you the truth. Um, but when I turned... 16 I had a motorcycle I was 15 and a half and I came up to the Napa Valley at 16 years old and as long as I took the tour I could do a tasting and I did the <laughs> tasting I could buy some and so I buy some green Hungarian for you know two dollars and share it with my gal friend who was sitting on the back of the bike <laughs> and uh so I kind of I don't know, it wasn't really showing off, but it was kind of cool that uh, there was no carding or anything getting weird about uh, some kid buying some, <laughs> some wine to enjoy. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. You're 16 and drinking age is 21. Maybe it was 18. It was yeah, after a it while. Yeah, 21. Okay, yeah. And, uh, but they're serving you, no problem. <laughs> no problem. I never had a problem. It was the darnest thing. Typically, it was summertime. Oh, so we're... What what wineries did you go to? What where was what was going on back then? Uh, BV was one of my favorite. In fact, I bought some uh, George Latour way back in. Uh, oh boy, that would have been uh, the '63 vintage, right. and uh, that was uh, three dollars a bottle. And then they jacked up the price to three dollars and fifty cents with the '64 <laughs> coming out, and that was definitely high end. And um, those I kept in my parents' cellar. The rest of them I, I would party with. I'd go to Martini and uh, Krug. And across the street was uh, Christian Brothers. Right. Back then it was uh, sparkling wine. And that was pretty exciting. And that's the uh, that's currently the what? The, the home of the CIA, Greystone. Correct. So, so all right. So you graduated from high school and you joined the Navy. What What's that story? Well, um, needed to get away. Okay. Tell you the truth. Uh, the, my friends were starting to get into more and more hard drugs, and I, I didn't really want to get caught up in that. Right. Uh, I, I, and I didn't want to, really wasn't ready for college, and I wasn't ready for a job, so it just seemed like a good alternative. I was in good shape and uh, studied all the tests and just really, you know, cut off all my hair. And, you know, I, I had 120 days to basically, uh, I was in the reserves, and uh, just before I had a report to boot camp. And I was excited to tell you the truth. And I, I, I aced all the tests they gave me and, and was in great shape. So I really didn't have to do much of anything. I, I just got promoted and um, um, I went back to school back in Millington, Tennessee, Me Memphis area. And I had a, a little apartment in Memphis. I was there for uh, nine, eight months and then I, I Went out to uh, San Diego to Coronado, tried to become a SEAL. That didn't work out. I got a infection in my foot, so uh, ended up getting drummed out and tried to get back, and it would have been week one instead of week eight, <laughs> so forget it. Yeah. Um, I became an air crewman based in Guam uh, in an EC-121 super constellation. We used to be typhoon trackers. We'd fly right into the eye of the typhoon and then find out where in the world we were by looking at the North Star with a sexton you got and uh, in a reading plane. off the coordinates. You gotta be kidding me. 
You, no. fl- you guys were flying into typhoons. Yeah, this was before satellites, so that was the, the way to figure out where we were. Uh-huh. We'd go in at night, and if it wasn't 100 knots, that didn't count. It was a <laughs> tropical depression. <laughs> and I did 30 uh-huh. penetrations. A real live typhoon. Yeah, can you? I've heard stories about this, and obviously you've lived it thirty times. It just seems like that's a really kind of dangerous, really dangerous thing to do. Or is it not that dangerous? Just really hairy. It was hairy. I'll okay. say that much. But the one cool thing is, I never, ever, ever got airsick, <laughs> and I was totally an exception of the rule because somebody would start, and then it would just start moving around and. Just that aroma was enough for a lot of people. <laughs> how many? How many guys on the people on the plane? We had two crews. Just two uh, crews. Okay. So there were twenty-four of us. Yeah. So you would we would fly eighteen hours at a time. So it'd be nine hours on and nine hours off, or four and a half on, nine hours off, four and a half on. We had a full kitchen, um, bunks. Uh, it was living pretty large. Because yeah, these are these big. These are these big, big planes, right? Yeah. yeah. Super, okay, got it. Four engine with tip tanks. And like I say, 18 hours of fuel. So they would kind of pervert us in Vietnam. We'd go flying up to Haiphong, Hainan, uh, back and forth there and monitor all the MiGs and surface-to-air missiles and boat traffic and you name it. We were That was our one of our big responsibilities. They'd go there at least once a month. And typically the end of the month and then the beginning of the next. That way we got uh, hazardous duty pay and uh, tax-free and all this other nice all the <laughs> accoutrements. Nice, yeah. But basically, so the Vietnam War was in full swing, but you're, uh, you were Navy, Navy Air. so were, Yeah, but I did um, spend time on the ground and in the helicopters huh. and got spun off to the 101st Airborne. So it was... Uh, it wasn't all just flying around. It was. It would be in the water, on the ground, you name it. I had a top secret clearance, so I got a map to to monitor all the, you know, the the damage in our on our perimeter. One thing was, I, they always gave me a lighter. To, <laughs> anything goes wrong, light the map. You know, oh, and then you could do whatever you want to do about, you know, defending yourself. Right. And I typically have a, a marine on either side of me. And they were crackerjack shots. In fact, one time they nailed a guy right up in a tree. I never saw him alive, but I got his AK-47 with a scope on it, and everybody thought I was bad. I carried that thing wherever I went. <laughs> oh man! And uh, it, it was really a, a mean-looking machine. I'll say that much. It had a wooden stock with the Vietnamese writing on it and the works. Wow. So, we went back last year, my wife and I, for our yeah. 50th anniversary, my first deployment. Tell me about that. You and Beverly went back, so fifty. So it's been what, 50 years? Yeah, almost to the day. Wow. April of uh, 1969 was my first uh, my first deployment, and uh, much better reception this time. <laughs> <laughs> How was that trip? Because I know I read a couple. Of, was it great? It was wonderful. I'm really glad we did it last year instead of this year. It would have been just impossible. Yeah. Uh, but um, it worked out beautifully. Uh, we took the river cruise up to uh, into Cambodia and visited temples and people's homes and the works. It was just, it was phenomenal. Mm. Nice. Yeah, I'm glad you guys got to do that. Me Kinda. too. It was a good, good uh, you know, memory uh, cleanser, if you will. I never had 
post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the darnest thing. All my, all my friends got it. Huh. But I never had a touch of it. But uh, I, I had memories, uh, real clear memories of the different places, Da Nang, Chulai, Fubai, Hue. And uh, I had to visit each and every one of those and you know, just kind of wash up the memories. And it's so, so different 50 years later. It's, it's, it's laughable. Yeah. Why? How come you think you never had the post-traumatic thing? That is, there's a button or a trigger that snaps, and I just don't think I have that button or trigger. That's huh. all there is to it. I've I've talked to psychologists and different people about it, and um, there's just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm you very don't. fortunate yeah. in that regard, you know, because some I I tried to get a few of my friends to come back with me and there's no way you know they're they just say they they dream it all the time that they're still there oh yeah oh man but it was thank you the gi bill that i got to you know pursue my 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 career if you will i was going to either be a medical doctor or a veterinarian took all the prerequisite classes and i realized that taking wine classes were uh as good as anything uh, to become a, a medical or veterinary doctor. So uh, I met a lot of miserable doctors and a lot of happy winemakers and decided <laughs> not to even apply for for med school. Because, uh, uh, yeah, I was doing some research on you. So you went to Santa Rosa JC after the Navy for a couple of years and then, uh, yeah. and then moved up to Davis. That so. was a real education, too. I, I had some great classes at, at Santa Rosa JC and got great grades and so I got to choose whatever college I wanted to go to and Davis was number one nice and uh, yeah I had Maynard Ameren's last class and uh, Ann Noble's first class um, they were kind of teaming up if you will yeah. so it was that was wonderful Ralph Kunke, um these yeah, I remember Cornelius O all these guys just are historical figures in my mind i remember Kunky. i had Kunky when i was there but there was other guys yeah. who retired he was great we used to go out and uh, have a beer across the street the graduate <laughs> <laughs> the graduate cool. i remember that place what was that sure. uh, dollar pitcher nights for beer on thursday nights was that it? <laughs> yeah what, what could I possibly that. go wrong <laughs> yeah everything yeah in fact i have a degree in malting and brewing with dr lewis <laughs> uh, as well as enology viticulture who, who else was it uh, in the enology program with you some of your classmates um, Mike Martini, okay. uh, Bob Levy, uh, Kathy Corson. Uh, I know I'm going to leave somebody out. One of the Wenty boys, and okay. just it was a phenomenal. Uh, Tim Mondavi. Yeah, we had a spectacular class. I mean, they all knew exactly where they were going to go work. You know, I <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I was very fortunate. I, I was one of uh, about 20 applying for the the job at Fremark Abbey, they were hiring a Davis graduate every year. And um, I was one of the final two. I'll say Rob Davis was uh, the other one. Rob and Davis he, who went to Jordan Winery for a long correct. time. Correct, yeah. right back then too, back in 76, when I was applying at uh, Fremark Abbey. And so he had an interview with Jerry Looper first. And um, on his way out, he's going, good luck, you'll need it. And uh, <laughs> So I'm interviewing with Jerry. Fortunately, I, I I was working in the lab at Davis, and so I knew all the 
the the programs on how, how to you know check SO2 or volatile acidity or you name it. Yeah, run a so TA. I, yeah. that, he couldn't trip me up on any of that stuff. So about 4:30 or quarter to five, he's going well. It's you know 4:30. Um, what are you going to do the rest of the day? And I said, well, I'm going to go downtown and get a beer. He said, Oh, may I join you? And I said, Sure. <laughs> so we went downtown in St. Helena and got a beer. I guess at Ray's. Yeah, at Ray's. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember Ray's. <laughs> and he said, That's a great answer. You know, a lot of these guys will say, Oh, I've got a couple of wines. I got to blend together. You don't do blending after four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it's time for a beer, you know. And <laughs> we came up with a term it takes a lot of good beer to make a great wine. And uh, that's basically. Got me the job, I think. I don't know. Because <laughs> Jerry Looper, now at that time, this was you know a few years before I got into the whole game, but he was he was wasn't he he was quite the famous winemaker at that time, right? So it was indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, he went on to uh, Europe after uh, you know being out in Carneros for a while, doing his own thing. Uh, moved out to Europe, and he I really didn't get a full season with him. He left. Uh, huh before the season really got into bloom. And uh, Larry Langbin took over, and Larry was a uh, Davis graduate the year before. And I thought, hmm, if I play my cards right, maybe I can become a winemaker here. <laughs> that's right, but, that's, that's the era yeah. where people were becoming winemakers like instantly out of Davis. Something like that, Almost. yeah. I, I got, uh, they promoted me over to, well, transferred me over to Rutherford Hill that they had just acquired. Oh, I was very frustrated trying to work there in the cellar. And so after a week, you know, I went to uh, Phil Baxter, the winemaker, and said, you know, hey, I quit. <laughs> he said, you've only been here a week. <laughs> I said, no, nah, this is crazy. I didn't go to Davis to, to, to do this. This is bucket yeah, uh, bucket throwing. And uh, so he said, how'd you like to work in the lab? I said, hmm, okay. And that was the last I ever punched the clock. It was a full-time job. I worked in the lab basically doctoring wines and figuring out what's wrong with this one how are we going to make it better and it was a real education if you will Got so it. that was a great opportunity so, and he introduced me to ernie van asperen who okay. was just starting up round hill winery all right i'm going to so I, 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 I was his original because i want to get to ernie i want to stop it for a second so you did an internship at freemark for what a year or so right just uh, yeah. one season. One season. Uh, it was almost a year. It went from uh, June until bottling time in April, May. So, yeah, about a year. Got to ask you a question. Was Nico there? Nico Schock? Yeah, sure okay. was. Nico Schock, who was, because I remember he worked at Fremark under Larry Langman. Yes. Nico, yep. my dad hired Nico as winemaker here at Schaefer. When he, uh, I think he hired him for the 1980 vintage. So, Nico was yeah. here. For about three years, and then he moved on, and I came in in '83. But uh, great guy, and I uh, agree. Yeah, got me. Boy, strong as an ox too, and a good winemaker. Yeah. Um, and so from there you went. So Freemark and Rutherford Hill were connected. I remember that same ownership. So they moved you over to Free to Rutherford Hill with Phil Baxter, who's the winemaker. Yeah. So uh, here's another question for you: Were you there during the '79 harvest? Yes. Because <laughs> the '70 disaster. Yeah, that was, I can't, well, I wasn't here. I can't remember the details, but I do know that dad picked his grapes really late and they were super, super ripe. You know, I, I, I was, you, by then, I was, that was my second year at Duckhorn. Oh, so, you were gone. Oh, yeah. Because so 78, 
I'm oh, that's right. I, that's right. Kind of mixing them up. That's right. Was, uh, yeah, I would have been there for just uh, 76, 77 harvest. Got uh, it. Okay. And <laughs> then, yeah. Okay, sorry um, about that. 78, 79. 79, we didn't make a Cabernet that year. Basically, okay. just gave it up. Uh, I remember being in a vineyard with my, my wife, Beverly. She is my girlfriend at the time. But um, we, were, we were watching them pick these uh, grapes out in uh, George Three in Rutherford. And they're pouring them into this gondola. And you couldn't see the grapes. There was just so much liquid. Yeah. We followed them to BV, <laughs> and they tipped the gondola into the, this trough. And the trough just bled out. They let all the liquid go. Oh. And then they saved the grapes and put them into a destemmer and up into the tanks. And it was the darnest thing watching that. And so we, we said, well, I got the day off today, so let's let's go downtown, get some you know steaks and barbecue them. And we go to Safeway and we're crunching along in the aisles. It's the darnest thing. We're, we're crunching along and it's bags and bags of sugar these guys are carrying. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked the manager, I said, what's going on with the sugar? And he goes, I guess they're drinking a lot of coffee this year. <laughs> oh, sure. So I wasn't around for the 79 harvest. So you're telling me it was probably a lot of rain and couldn't get ripeness is what you're telling me. Exactly correct. Okay. It was the, the only disaster vintage I can recall in, you know, 45 vintages. So, Interesting. Yeah. And here's my, what Dad told me about our 79, because we didn't have a winery. He was custom crushing. He custom crushed it up at uh, Rutherford Hill with Phil Baxter. And yeah. I, this was hillside stuff, early years for Dad. And our hillside stuff comes in early. And for some reason, it must have been way before the rains, because he couldn't, he couldn't get pickers. And it was a bit of a hot spell. And he brought the stuff in at 25 or 26 bricks. And... Baxter goes, well, we're going to have to take care of that. So the opposite situation happened. Instead, wow. of, adding, instead of adding sugar, they had a little, little uh, H2O to get that sugar back down. So interesting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't know the rest of the harvest was such, a, was such a mess with rain and cold weather. It was. We did bring in a little bit of Cabernet from up on Howell Mountain, uh, but most, most of what we brought in was Merlot, and that was uh, spared the, the weather. It was, you know, like, yeah, like you, you heard, it was a heat, heat wave before okay. the rain came. And when the rain came, it, it really didn't let up. It, it just went all the way through the rest of the time. So the people who were picking then, they, they tried everything, tried helicopters with uh, leaf blowers, you name it, to try to just get rid of the water. But it, it was just basically a disaster. Oh, man. And you mentioned Beverly. So you guys were dating? How did you guys meet? Yeah, we met in Calistoga, believe it or not. I was sitting down with Ben Falk and John Axhelm and having a, you know, we had two or three bottles of wine open at the table and uh, we're tasting them and uh, and she was walking by and they're tapping on the window. They knew her. <laughs> so she came in uh, in our old spot, you know, the Calistoga Inn. Right. And sat down and drinking some wine with us, you know, and all of a sudden we're playing footsie under the table and I got her <laughs> phone number and... But we never did hook up. It was the darndest thing. We met again in uh, Las Vegas for one of those enology conventions and uh, put two and two together. Eventually, I got a hold of her. Then we went out on a date to the cameo to see The Godfather, part one and two, and missed part of the beginning. So we had to go 
back again <laughs> the next day. I had a motorcycle back then, uh, so that was my, my transportation. And mm, pretty much got married in 1981. Okay. okay. Mother's Day. Beautiful. And um, yeah, that was the last of the motorcycle days. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, and I, I interrupted you earlier. You mentioned uh, Ernie Van Asprin. So you met you met him when you were up at uh, Rutherford Hill. Yeah, we actually had lunch together. Uh, Phil wanted me to introduce uh, Ernie to me, and um, Ernie had a uh, a wine in a decanter, <laughs> and he's pouring it for me. And he he wants to know what do you think of this wine? I I'm smelling it and just going. I think I know this wine. Is this silver oak? And he's go, he's looking around like like I got a tip from the Mater D or something, you know. <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah." I go, "Yeah, I think this is 70 72 uh 72 uh, silver oak, you know, cuz we had made that a Franciscan and I had put in a spell there. Right. And uh tasted it out of barrel a few times and it had that distinctive Brett character. Right. So he was blown away. Oh, I became his palate, if you will. Okay. And uh, yeah, there. So uh, we'd we'd go up to uh, uh, Healdsburg and different wineries, and I get to meet all the rock stars up there, um, and taste through the wines that were available in bulk, and the ones I I liked, I'd keep close to me, and the ones I didn't like, I'd push away. So it'd be a. E and F I liked and so he would shoo me out of the room let me go take a tour of the facility while he did a, a negotiation with the winemakers huh. and uh, come up with a price and that's that was the beginning around here we we did a 74 Cabernet to die for it was just wonderful and we were able to sell it for a song too and still make money so round hill Ernie Van Asprin starred round hill and his other career that they, I think went on for the whole time was he had wine stores, right? Um, yes, or, or called, Ernie's. Called Ernie's. Yeah. And a, a number of them, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, I got to work in most of them. In fact, all of them. Uh, there was one down in San Bruno, uh, Redwood City, up in uh, uh, San Francisco, and up here in St. Helena. That's right. I remember yeah, right that. Right there in Inglewood. And he, but then, so when he started Round Hill, he was basically, help me with this one, he was buying bulk wine and bottling it under the Round Hill label, or was he crushing grapes also? No, no grapes. Interesting. Uh, we would just get bulk, yeah. In fact, uh, it was out at Lodi Lane, um, the, oh God, Marion Green's uh, home right next door, and there was a, a basically a warehouse, and we, we ate bottled there. So he was like the first negotiant guy, in a way. Correct. One yeah. Of the, yeah. One of the early, for sure. Okay. Is the round hill, and so, so you start at that point. You're working with him, or you helped found that whole winery. Is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. As original winemaker, so um, I'd I'd make the blending decisions, and uh, you know he'd come up with basically the quantities, and. Uh, that was it. That was that. Uh, Charlie Abella was my right hand man. He was I, a very sharp guy. I was going to ask you about Charlie because I remember yeah. dad, dad, and dad loved Charlie, and I met him a couple times. He is times. a great yeah. guy. Oh my God, he was just wonderful. Yeah, um, he was one of my best men at uh, my wedding, <laughs> um, along with Bob Levy. 
And I remember the only time I was at Round Hill, I was, uh, that's where I met Charlie Abella. I met Doug Manning. It was Christmas time. I was home from Davis. And Dad, yeah. it, was, it was the Christmas of 78. So you weren't there. But um, right. Dad had, he was aging his 78 cab. First wine he made. It was, uh, he crushed it at Markham and made it at Round Hill because he knew Ernie and Charlie. So it was like sure. a custom crush, 1,000 cases. So um, he said, well, I'm going up to rack my wine. I'm home from you know, Davis. I said, okay. He goes, come along. So I'm up there learning how to wash barrels with Charlie Abella and Doug Manning. And then um, it was lunch break. We're sitting out having some sandwiches. And these guys pulled some of the, the 78 cab that, of Schaefer out of the tank that we were racking to just to have with lunch. And, you know, heck, I didn't know if it was good or not. And uh, I remember Doug Manning going, this is really good. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, that was my first uh, experience with our 78 cab. And I was like, I didn't know what was going on. And then we, you know, yeah. went back to barrels and I went back to school. So that was the, the birth of that. How funny. That really put Schaefer on the map, too. That that wine was spectacular. There's no question about it. We we rated it as flawless at uh, up there in Calistoga. Well, thank you. But uh, speaking of 78, so how did you get from Round Hill to Duck Horn? It's the darndest thing. I, I, I was good friends with uh, Rick Foreman and with Phil Baxter and let's see, someone else who Dan Duckhorn was talking to saying he needed the winemaker and they all mentioned my name. Huh. So he wanted to, to, to meet with me and I happened to be going by the winery on my motorcycle. I pull up because he's out there working in uh, some trees. And so we had a little discussion. And uh, the funniest thing is that he, I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll consult for you. He goes, consult? Hell, I want somebody to make the wine, you know. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> so I got the job on the spot. And... Uh, that was uh, June of 78. There really wasn't a facility there. He had just bought a, a press and a couple of tanks and, you know, just trying to make something happen. And we, we bought a, a, a destemmer and, and went from there. I mean, it was a little basket press. I still have a picture of myself and, you know, kneeling down, taking a, a sample out of, the, out of this little press. But, uh, well, it was an interesting beginning. Fortunately, it was 1978, and 76 was hot, hot, awful, dry, drought. Right. 77, same thing. Mm -hmm. 78 was the perfect vintage. And then, of course, 79 was a disaster. Right. And uh, we, fortunately, my, my good friend Rick Foreman turned us on to Three Palms. He didn't have to do that by any stretch of the imagination. He was winemaker at Sterling, and we had no intention of making a Merlot. And said, Merlot? Yeah, what? And so we brought it in anyway, and it was knockout. Um, and and I didn't know the rules at the time. I should have known, <laughs> but I put in 15% Beatty Howell Mountain Cabernet into it. Oh, we're getting ready to bottle. Yeah, and a counselor, you know, our counsel's going. Uh, so Tom, what else is in there? I go, well, I've got 15% Beatty Howell Mountain Cabernet. And he goes, no, yeah, come on. <laughs> and I go, no, seriously. He goes, no. And I, so he opens up chapter and verse. There it is, 95%, same as vintage. Uh-oh. Right. <laughs> so we got a use up by BATF, uh, one time only. 
And uh, so we got away with it. And thank goodness, because to, di- to this day, that wine is still alive and well. It's a gorgeous wine. It was 15%. It was Merlot or Cab? Cabernet, 15%. And the rest of it was Merlot, three palms. But it was a different vintage or same vintage? Same vintage. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Oh. But if it says three palms vineyard, just like hillside. Oh, it's got to be 95%. That's right. Correct. Got it. Okay. Oops. So, so Rick Foreman, who was winemaker at the time at Sterling, and he was a he was a stud winemaker in those days. He was the guy, one of the guys, and um, absolutely. And they were. I remember Sterling had a three palms vineyard Merlot, I think. Was, and yeah. so he turned you guys onto that. So I, for some reason, I thought Dan was crazy about Merlot and really wanted to do it. So that wasn't the case. He became crazy about it, I'll say that much, and he wanted to do it for sure because he and Rick did get to travel to to France together. Okay, because a lot of folks might not know, Merlot back in late 70s, very few people, if anyone, made a varietal Merlot. Merlot was used mostly for blending. So I can remember I was working at Lake Spring with Randy Mason. That was 81, 82, and they were starting to make a Merlot, but it was still kind of new. So you guys you know, were trailblazers. And that first wine, 78 Merlot, was from Duckhorn, was absolutely amazing. And at 15% cab, that's good to know. <laughs> Thanks, man. There you go. <laughs> I love it. That made all the difference in the world, too. I think if it were been 100% uh, Merlot, it would have been a head-scratcher. And to this day, they don't make 100% Merlot out of there. It's it, It's got all five varietals growing in the vineyard. Right. And it's all owned by Duckhorn now. Yeah. I yeah. kind of made a little joke a while back to, that I wanted to get some of the grapes, and they kind of looked at me dumbfounded. <laughs> but... Um, uh, yeah, that I made it at Provenance, as a matter of fact. I was making a Three Palms Merlot and a Three Palms Cabernet. I had access to the fruit, but then Diageo just chickened out from the prices, and they let it go. How big How big a vineyard is it? How many acres? 80. 80, okay. I didn't realize it was that yeah. big. Okay. And it's all rock, too. Yeah. But there's, fortunately, there's water. And, uh, yeah, in fact, to, to plant it, they were using fire hoses to blast a hole into the rock <laughs> um, and then fill it up with sand and, 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 and real dirt and, and, a, and, a, and a rootstock. Interesting, interesting. So, yeah. so Duckhorn, fab, first release was a 78. I think that was the first release from Duckhorn. It was a 78 Merlot. Correct. And released in 81 probably, thereabouts. And uh, was that the only wine from Duckhorn in the beginning? Or was there Cabernet too? No, we made a Cabernet as well. Okay. Cabernet was uh, very nice. It was, uh, it was from uh, uh, Spotswood Vineyard and also uh, down in your area. I can't remember his name. Dick uh, Stelzner. Stelzner. Dick Stelzner, right. correct. Mm-hmm. Thank you. you bet. And that was, uh, that was fascinating stuff. We only sold it for $10.50, but we went crazy with the Merlot and jacked it all the way up to twelve dollars and fifty cents <laughs> it, it was so funny because there'd be some people that say well i'm not gonna i don't know my husband would never drink merlot i said well don't tell him it's merlot and especially after that sideways movie came out um and you know they'd come back and they say you're right he loves it you know <laughs> he didn't tell him it was merlot well, I was going to ask you about that because, you know, you were really on the front lines in the beginning, you know, a, t- a totally kind of unknown varietal by itself, Merlot, you know, bursts on the scene and, you know, kind of meanders around in the 80s, people more familiar with it. And then the 90s, it just goes nuts, rock star, you know, and then all of a sudden becoming 
kind of a you know a punchline from a from a movie. I mean, uh, well, what's what your had take happened on that? was that Merlot was already on the ropes. They were making it down in uh, Monterey and Lodi and calling it Merlot, and it was Plonk. Right. And uh, it was really it was bringing the name down. There was just too much of it. And it was growing in the wrong spots. It, it needs good drainage. If you don't have good drainage, you don't really have Merlot. Mm-hmm. And so it was getting kind of beat up as a varietal. We fortunately had a good reputation, a good name, and we never just bottled something just to call it Merlot. So that, that was a crucial part of our success during that, that time where it really was uh, kind of a joke, if you will. You couldn't even give the stuff away in Los Angeles. but the the punchline in there was not supposed to really be uh, taken seriously. Um, I mean, you wouldn't want that guy Miles to be your your uh, Mater D. <laughs> so he's drinking out of the spit bucket. Remember? Yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, it it was not meant to be serious, but it it was taken seriously. You know, none of that Blanken Merlot. And yeah, uh, I I remember hearing the story that it was uh, it was uh, just uh, it was like they were doing ten or twelve takes and it was the last shot of the night and they were all hungry so he just kind of let loose with that ripped on ripped with that line and then they <laughs> they took it back in the editing and kept it which was yeah unfortunate because it kind of yeah. hurt sales for a lot of people but I okay. I think in the long run it's it's done good things for Merlot because uh, um. All the folks that were making Merlot maybe not as good as it should be. Kind of, a lot of the negotiant guys went away, stopped making it. Yeah. Start making. Yeah. Start making Pinot Noir, and uh, so now, you know, <laughs> if, if you see a varietal Merlot out there, chances are it's going to be pretty darn good. Because if it's not, you know, it doesn't have a chance to start. Doesn't have a chance to begin to begin with. So, um, it'll. It's there. Yeah, I've taken it seriously all my my career, right. and uh, yeah, we're making the Pellet Estate. Merlot, and it's it's good enough. It stands on its own. I don't need to add anything to it. Sometimes I will add some uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, but it's uh, a estate out on the base of Spring Mountain. That stuff, just a knockout. Mm. I'm, I'm still enjoying it. You know, still enjoying making Merlot. Good, good. So, 22 years at Duckhorn. How and it was a great, great run. Why why did it work so well? What was what worked? What was the trick at Duckhorn? Because it's a wonderful place. I, I would say we, we focused on quality, not quantity. Um, and yeah, I, w- I was meticulous on, on making sure that we didn't bottle anything that we weren't going to be proud of. That's why we came up with you know names like decoy and migration and so forth. These were second labels and uh, weren't supposed to shine like the Duckhorn, uh, lo- the, the, our moniker, mm-hmm. you know, our, 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 our home base uh so that was very important uh and we had a good run of vineyards and meticulous uh management um very very pleased with the the madrigal uh connection we had and uh, jess madrigal in particular Uh, they were they were meticulous on making sure that we got all the quality we could and that's that's madrigal that's jess madrigal and his team they're they're uh vineyard Vineyard Management Company, that's right. right? So they take care of your. And vines. I'm still up there making wine. Wow, <laughs> that's my that's my go-to place for for uh, pellet for my own. And yeah, we're starting a new wine company. 
uh, called Double Plus. We'll have Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet uh, coming in. Cool. So that's yeah, that, I agree. That's your own. That's your own. Uh, your own deal coming up. Yeah, a legal entity. Okay. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> I do a lot of things under the radar, you know, for family and friends, but uh, this one's going to be a legal entity. Cool. So after Duckhorn, you made a move. Tell me about that one. Yeah, I got the opportunity to, to go to Hewitt, uh, Hewitt Vineyard, and and use Bill Hewitt's name. Uh, Mr. Hewitt had passed away, and the opportunity came up, uh, and they were really trying to get me to, to interview with this Tom Selfridge guy. And so I finally said, look, you know, we'll have lunch together in, in Yauntville. I don't want to do it in St. Helena, have people talking and wondering. So... We had lunch, and uh, so we go out to the vineyard after lunch, and it's just phenomenal, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And he's got me up at the house. He's pointing around to the vineyard, and he said, all of this would be yours. You know, it's like the devil <laughs> tempting Jesus. And uh, and I'm, I'm looking at it, I, I said, well, you know what? Tell you the truth, um, I'm, a, I'm not even flying the plane anymore. I'm, I'm an autopilot at, at Duckhorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had acquired GoldenEye, we had Paradox, we had all these facilities and winemakers, and I'm just basically looking over the shoulder, kind of steering them around a little bit, but I wasn't really flying a plane. Right. And so this would have been an opportunity to start all over again. And uh, with this, so I said, throw my, name, my, my hat into the ring. And he said, well, you're the only hat. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, let's wait till after the wine auction in uh, 2000. Till we make any kind of a mention of it but I had already hinted to Dan and Margaret that I was leaving and they were breaking up too so uh, they never got it until you know basically the wine auction and I mentioned it to Mike Thompson our congressman and he kind of like his jaw drops he goes you can't leave Duckhorn you are Duckhorn you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, it was a great opportunity to work with the Hewitt fruit and and then I didn't realize it but Provenance was there too. We had a huge contract with Andy Beckstoffer and bringing in Merlot and Cabernet from all around the valley. Okay, interesting. Now I remember when that news broke that you were leaving Duckhorn, and we were all, um, yeah, because Winaldi is Duckhorn. Um, yeah. But uh, well, good for you. That takes a lot of guts, and uh, how fun to get back in the. What was it like getting back in the driver's seat? Oh, it was. You know, to tell you the truth, we the first couple of years were. I wasn't really in the driver's seat. We were doing custom crushing. Our first year was at Cardinal. That was 2000. And then 2001, we were at Andretti and Laird. Right. And then by 2002, we acquired that building that became, uh, was Bokanon. It became Provenance. And uh, August of 2002, we had purchased it and moved in. And... We did the whole harvest there. It was the darnest thing. It was exciting. Mm. That became very exciting. Interesting look back, too, because I've been replaced, I think, five times now (laughs) since I left in November of 2014. And uh, the same thing happened at Duckhorn. Um, Yeah, there's been a few. Yeah. Tony Biaggi didn't take over like I thought he would. Uh, Mark Berenger did. Right. And Mark's over at Barringer, Barringer now, right. <laughs> where he belongs. Yeah. So Providence for 14 years, another great run. Good for you. Yeah, indeed. And uh, and Hewitt. And uh, I think you 
you had got cab got uh in the top 10 spectators one year back in 13 i think yeah it was number four yeah. uh in the world and uh number one cabernet and uh that was cool yeah, yeah. that was a 2010 vintage which was a good and we made a double plus that year that was even higher scoring but there wasn't enough quantity to to uh to uh, get that kind of score Aren't you, you know, 2010, aren't you amazed how good the 2010s are? Because at the time, it was a really tough harvest. I remember just being, ah, you know, I just, the weather wasn't cooperating. We couldn't, ripeness was there. It wasn't there. I mean, I just remember last night we were pulling our hair out. And then, then you know, a year and a half later, you're bottling these wines going, God, these are beautiful. So, yeah, just never know. Kind of funny. Really. There was something about how the, the wines got along with the barrels, I think, that year. That, hmm. that was a crucial part. We're really getting meticulous about the barrel selection, the toasting, the works. And, and that's a crucial ingredient. It, it's much more important than most people would ever imagine. And um, I think they played well together, that, that vintage. Yeah. I know, yeah, Elias spends a lot of time with uh, Cooper's coopers and selection and um the techno- yeah, technolo- technology has gotten really 11 cool. and the in even the 08 and uh those were more difficult mm-hmm. vintages to to you know put together than the than the 10 right. um so after 14 you retired so how's retirement going <laughs> <laughs> it's fun honest to god I, you know um oh, I, I don't have to get out of bed in the morning if i don't want to you know it's just uh you're it's been a good ride you're not and retired in washington you're not retired you're busy tell me so tell me i want to hear i want to hear about everything so washington what else yeah i'm uh with uh, stan teeterman our gas guy uh, you got a beautiful vineyard across from uh, oakville crossroad right and uh and then i'm doing the pellet estate and um oh i'm stout family vineyards too okay we just bottle a nice Sauvignon Blanc, um, and yeah, this this new one, the Alpha Omega. Or what am I saying? A double, double plus. plus. Yeah. Later. And uh, so, uh, consulting. Besides not having to get out of bed at any particular time, what else do you like about it? Well, I, I make the the final decisions for blending. I, that's that's a crucial part in my life, anyway. Uh, so. That that one is is something I've been very blessed uh, to to have the ability to to separate what I I'm convinced is going to be very popular from something that probably won't work out, and uh, so it it that part is crucial. Um, I do that every year up in Washington. I'll, I'll mark the barrels uh, with these different emblems mm-hmm. of symbols, right. and uh, and then come back. Uh, and see how they get together, how they blend together. And then we'll come back a month later and do the final, final blends. And uh, that's that's my call. They, they, they all let me do as I wish. Yeah. And I'm a partner as well as their consulting winemaker. That's, that's, and that's super. It's been very successful. Super. In fact, I just got a couple of cases, and there's two more on their way of the rosé we, we finished it out it's my summer wine nice <laughs> i just love it got the twist off and it's syrah and grenache and uh, it's the bleed and uh it's salmon color perfect it's wonderful good so when i'm 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 buzzing home on pratt avenue one of these evenings i'll stop by 
because uh, I'll have one chilled for you. you got ready it. Because go. I pass your house. You're my shortcut, and I'm trying to keep this. Good I'm trying to keep the speed fairly down. I'm working on yeah. that. I'm working on it. Um, it's 35. We wanted to make it 25, like the rest of town, but that's all right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, people still go 50. Yeah, it's rural. Come on, we're country folks. Yeah. Um, but I got to ask you about something else besides wine and your passion for wine. You are probably the most famous cyclist in the Napa Valley. <laughs> you are. When did you start? When did this passion start? All you do is ride your bike. Yeah, it, it was. I would have to say it was probably during the Davis days. Um, it was after I had, uh, I, I'd say, my seventh knee operation, oh. <laughs> uh, believe it or not. And uh, I, I just took on the bicycle as a, a way in my, my, the doctor did the, oh, he did a cadaver replacement for my ligaments and uh, did a microfracturing of my kneecap. Mm. And uh, he, you know, I told him I'm sick and tired of going to physical therapy. And he said, well, just ride your bicycle. And I go, well, Doc, you know, either I'm riding up and down the highway with the drunks or I'm up in some serious hills. And we'll go up in the serious hills. <laughs> I go, well, aren't you worried that I'll overdo it? He goes, no, you can't overdo it. Oh, yeah? <laughs> so there was like a challenge. Oh, okay. Well, because. I, it really got into my, my blood, no question well, it is. about it. I, I, I've done 10 death rides. What's, and that's what's a death out ride? Out of Markleyville. It's uh, you go over Monitor Pass, down into Nevada, back over Monitor Pass, and then into Hope Valley, and then up uh, Ebbets Pass, and then down, and then uh, to Strawberry, and then back around, up and down. And then you do Carson Pass up to the top and back down. And it's uh, <laughs> 130 miles and 16,000 feet of climbing, and it's just nuts. You've done 10 of those? <laughs> Ten of them. How long's, no more. How long does it take to do? How long does it take to do that? Best time is about nine hours, <laughs> and God. typically closer to ten. Oh man, you know, you know, I started riding. I remember I called you a few years ago because I said, you know, how do you wear these bike pants? Instead of laughing at me, you laughed with me. I really appreciate that, by the way, Tom. I've never <laughs> thanked you for that. Most people have said, don't you know what you're talking about, Schaefer? You were like, Schaefer, here's what you do. You just the pant, bop, 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 bop. You were great. Um, but I remember <laughs> talking to guys early on, and I was, I'd was i be really proud because I rode to Calistoga and back and, you know, averaged, you know, 15 miles per hour. And somebody said, I don't think it was you, but they said, well, have you, have you gone up over in the Pope Valley? I said, well, no. They go, why not? I go, well, there's a real big hill there. <laughs> and they said, well, <laughs> they said, well, for the good riding, you got to get, you got to climb one of these hills and get out into the you know, wilderness out there. But I do want to ask you one question about cycling because I heard a story that you did a midnight ride to Tahoe once. Is that true? Yeah, <laughs> it was. Tell me that one. <laughs> we, it was a full moon, and we went to Anna's Cantina and had a beer. Uh, Dave Smith had a beer. I had a beer. It was Guinness. Yeah. And Lorelei uh, <laughs> Tuttle had a Diet Coke. Okay. And we got on our bicycles and went down to the trail and then down to 128 and up to Lake Hennessy and then to Lake Berryessa and kept going. Dude, was that the plan or did you just, you got out there and yeah. just, okay, that was the plan. You just. <laughs> we got to, cause Dave has a, a, a nice little home up in Tahoe, uh, North Shore, as well as down here in uh, Napa Valley. He had a place in Costa Rica too. So you rode. But that being said, you rode the, uh, all. Uh, you rode all night long in the full moon. 
to, to Lake Tahoe. Yeah, and then Sunrise uh, in uh, Rath Valley area. Okay. Uh-huh. And then uh, the climb up to Truckee. We got to Truckee, and we're having a big breakfast and <laughs> coffee and, you know, just thinking, well, this is good enough. Let's let's get a ride the way back. And, uh, nah, let's go. No, you rode. So we just kept going. You rode. Oh, and you, we got to uh, uh, North Shore, 198 miles. Uh, and I'm looking at the odometer, and it just clicked over to 199. And I'm thinking, I ought to go around the block. Right, I'll forget right. about it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to do 200 oh, after, that's after a, all. How long, how long did that one take? How many hours? That was, we got in about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so we left at 1030. Uh, that, yeah, it was oh, 14 hours. You're crazy. 15 hours. You're crazy. I love you. I love you. <laughs> yeah, we had a masseuse waiting for us, too. We had, each of us got a nice massage afterwards. You need that. You need that. Yeah. So tell me. And a lot of pizza. Tell me about Double Plus. Are, can people buy these wines yet? Or are they out? No, no, not okay. yet. We we haven't even uh, we haven't even picked our first grape yet. Okay, okay, so, so it's coming. This is something for the future. Tell me about the name. What's the name mean? Well, it's my symbol for when I'm going to barrels, and I, I I'll give them a check if if that's good enough. A plus if it's really nice, or a minus if I don't think it's all that good, or God forbid X, you know, if it's got Britannomyces or some right. flaw, I'll give it an X. But every now and then I'll find one. Ooh, give it an H, I call it. A double two plus. pluses. Oh, this is. And uh, we tried to call our high-end uh, Hewitt ambassador because he was uh, ambassador to Jamaica once he retired as uh, John Deere's uh, president CEO. So we wanted to call it ambassador, but that's the wine I'm working with in in Washington. We have to call it ambassador wine of Washington because there's an ambassador vineyard that uh, Zellerback owns in Sonoma County so to make sure there's no confusion there so that the company would not allow us to use the ambassador uh, as a you know an indication of the high end right so I said how about double plus and boom it stuck yeah you know there we go but they never trademarked it oh you got trademark it and I got to I'll yeah. tell you why you got trademarked because um, I do something that no one knows about except Elias so when we're tasting blends, you know, blind, we got five or six wines in front of us, or even a, even like a, if we're tasting competition, um, you know, I don't get into too many, you know, adjectives. It's just mostly I'm just like, you know, quality of nose, what's the aroma like, what's the mouth like, you know, just nose and mouth, nose and mouth. Sure. And I rank them, and I use a little symbols, <laughs> and there's starting at the bottom is two, two negatives, two minus sign, like an equal sign. Yeah. Next better would be just one minus sign. Uh, okay would just be like a check. I might use a check, or I might yeah. use the word okay. If I yeah. like it, I give it a plus, whether it's nose or mouth. And if I really like it, I give it two pluses. <laughs> there you I go. I got the same thing. Tommy, I'm doing the same thing. Bingo. All right, <laughs> you can give me, I, I can work for you. I'll consult with you. You, you, you do go. the final blends. I'll just I'll just go you know sample grapes for you. Yeah, you you give them the check or the double plus, okay. please. That's, isn't that great? I I just love it. we we have owned the LLC now. You know we just applied for it and we got it. Good. So it's it, it. The rest is history. Good, good, good. Well, go trademark it because I might take it. I like it. No, I'm not going to do that. It's done. Okay, good, it's done. Good. Yeah. 
All right, Mr. Rinaldi, thank you so much for taking the time today. And my pleasure, indeed. And uh, yeah. great, great to hear your stories. And uh, I miss seeing you. I miss seeing you on the road. So uh, I'll see you out there on the on the cycling days one of these days here. Yeah. All right. And one of these days we got to refresh that that story about your. Uh, idea to make a port out of hillside select <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was yeah that didn't go over really well with my dad but that's a that was no a, kidding like, okay. <laughs> i could still hear the scream oh, oh yeah uh, his right. quote was you took 200 gallons of my cabernet and did this to it it was not good it's not <laughs> all right what's your marketing oh he's, he's oh, uh, a couple of rookies elias and me all right tommy take care great talking to you and, and be safe out there we'll see you Fairly well. All right. Tom Rinaldi has seen it all, from Janis Joplin and the Grateful Dead, flying through typhoons to every kind of up and down Mother Nature can throw at you in the Napa Valley Vineyard. And at 71 years old, he still has a sense of adventure and a sense of humor. Well, that was fun. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Tom mentioned that these days he's making wine for Pellet Estate. You can check out his latest work at pelletestate.com. If you like what you hear on the podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps other people find the podcast. And if you have questions, ideas, suggestions, please send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. We'll see you next time.